Father, thank you for the beautiful name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the name against which nothing can stand. Thank you that his name is the name we call on because we have the blessing of being your children. We pray, Father, that as we seek you in your word tonight, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to hear your voice from the book of Ruth. That you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So quick introduction. The book of Ruth is an account of redemption. And not only do we see the beauty of a person and family being redeemed after tragedy, tra tra tragedy, but we get a glimpse at our own redemption through the book of Ruth. Now, you'll probably notice, and if you've been listening to me for any length of time, which most of you have, um, that I never call it a story. I never go back and say, oh, let's talk about the story of creation. Or we're going to get into the story of Samson. I always say account. And there's a reason why. Because accounts are true. Stories aren't always, right? You can ask any fisherman or any hunter to um, relinquish the story of their latest catch, and um, you will find that, you know, the shot got farther and farther away, the fish fought harder and harder and got bigger and bigger every time the story gets told. Uh, that just tends to be the way it goes. Uh, we think of stories, you know, you read a book, oh, that was a good story. Or you watch a movie, oh, I liked the storyline. But stories can be fake. They can be fantasy and myth. And there's nothing wrong with stories. I love stories. Um, but the Bible is not a story. The Bible is an account. The things we read about actually happen. So that's why I tend to use the, the, the word account instead of story. The author was most likely the prophet and judge Samuel, just like he wrote the book of Judges, it's believed, written somewhere around 1050 to 1000 BC. So this book is a solid 3000 years old. Um, and it was written when the judges ruled that gives us insight into what the nation of Israel was like at the time, right? We finished the book of Judges last week and in verse 25, it said in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's what was going on. Religiously confusing times. The priests were hiring themselves out. Idolatry was practiced. And even though the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh, there was no central place of worship. The people weren't gathering at the tabernacle like they were supposed to. However, God was at work. And I love that. Because I think that makes the book of Ruth all the more applicable to us today. Because in the midst of a nation that was experiencing chaos, religious upheaval, political upheaval, um, wars without, right? And Israel was being oppressed and going to war with every one of their neighbors. And thankfully, we're not. But that threat is very real in our world today. And through all of that, in the midst of all of that, God was at work. He was at work preparing a family who would be part of the line of Jesus. And this whole account takes place in what would be 
from the perspective of the book of Ruth and what was, from our perspective, Jesus' birthplace, the city of Bethlehem, or the little town of Bethlehem. In verse 1, we'll read that um, Elimelech's family were called Ephrathites, and Ephrath is another name for Bethlehem. Uh, traditionally, Ruth was read at the Feast of Pentecost, celebration of the gathering of the harvest, and the context of the book makes sense that that would have been when they chose to read it. Um, and there's really some interesting things about the names throughout this book. So Elimelech, his name means my God is king. He, he doesn't really act like that. Naomi's name means pleasant. She eventually changes it to Mara, which means bitter, um, but you know, you got Malon, right? It means sickly. How do you, you have a kid, right? Boy, that thing looks terrible. Let's name him sick. Right? Then you have another one. Boy, that one looks worse than the first because Chilion means pining. Be like having children today and naming them, you know, like cancer and arthritis. I, I mean, it's, it's just you're, and granted, they were usually named for issues surrounding them so it's very likely both of these boys were ill as children but still give them a chance you got orpa which means fawn and the only reason i bring up the name orpa uh, is because that that is who oprah is named after but her parents got the letters mixed up just in case you didn't know that uh, ruth mean wow wind ruth means beauty and boaz means swiftness or in him is strength. What a great name. I tell you, folks, we have, we have dropped the ball on naming our children. They, they had it down in the Old Testament. You guys ready? Chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab, which they weren't supposed to do, but the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Wow, just, you know, they weren't supposed to leave the land. So Elimelech, in going to dwell among the Moabites, was being disobedient. I don't think that God killed Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion as some sort of punishment for their disobedience. Um, they went to a foreign land. It was a time of famine. The boys were already sickly. We, we don't know how old Elimelech was or, you know, we, we don't know exactly what happened. But what we do see is that God uses this tragedy to bring the focus back to him, which we will see. And, and I think this happens to us, that not that God brings tragedy into our lives because he thinks it's fun, but when tragedy occurs, he uses it to draw us back to himself or to draw us closer to himself. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 55 through 57 says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing. 
to my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called to you and said, do not fear. Just in case you've never read the book of Lamentations, you should spend some time in that book. Absolutely amazing. Written by the prophet Jeremiah, and it was his lamenting over the the condition of the nation of Israel in his time. Uh, Just absolutely amazing. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back. My daughters, why will you go with me? Are, you, are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Pay attention to that phrase. We're going to come back to it. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from you following after you, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Wow. So cultural tradition would have made the girls responsible for Naomi, right? They, they were the daughters-in-law. The husbands were dead, who would, would have been the ones responsible for their mother, especially since their father had passed away. And she tries to release them of that responsibility. She says, what good is it to follow me? What, if I get married tonight, If I get pregnant tonight and have two more sons, one for each of you, are you going to wait, you know, 15, 20 years for them to get old enough to marry you? Right? That's that's not going to make any sense. And this was actually part of Levitical law. It was part of the culture, and then it was written into the law as well. It's called the law of the Leverite marriage. And uh, don't ask me to spell Leverite. Uh But the law of the Leverite marriage was simply this. If you married someone and the husband died and there were no children, then it was the next brother's job to marry her, have a child with her, and then name the firstborn son after the brother who died. If you remember, the Sadducees wanted to test Jesus in this matter 
and because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So they said a brother married a wife, died with no kids. But he had six brothers. Each of them married the wife. Each of them died, and none of them had kids. Finally, the wife died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus looked at them and said, you are mistaken because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. One of my favorite statements in all of scripture. How often are we mistaken because we don't know the scriptures or we don't know the power of God? Far too often, I think. Uh, We saw this enacted in the book of Genesis chapter 38. Um, Judah had three kids, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Um, and Ur married Tamar and croaked. Actually, the Bible says that he displeased the Lord and the Lord killed him. Uh, I don't know what Ur did. I I don't know what you have to do to displease the Lord and have the Lord kill you, but um, he did something, right? Then you have Onan, and Onan refused to have a baby with his sister-in-law. He was willing to have sex with her, but not have a baby with her. Uh, Real great guy, Onan, so God killed him too. And at this point, Judah has no idea what's going on. All he knows is that his first two sons croaked after being with Tamar, right? Is she a bad cook? Is she a black widow? You know, is she a praying mantis? We, we don't know. But something was wrong. And so he withholds Sheila and says, well, he's not old enough. Wait. Right? Well, eventually Tamar saw that Sheila was old enough. And so she dresses up like a harlot, sleeps with Judah, and gets pregnant and takes his staff and signet ring as a sign. Lo and behold, when they find out she's pregnant, Judah says, burn her alive. Great great guy, that Judah. Um, And they bring her out to burn her alive, and she brings out his ring and said, whoever owns this ring is the guy who got me pregnant. And Judah was like, uh. (laughs) Actually, what he said, your righteousness far exceeds mine. And he never was with her again, but he raised uh, the boys that she had. But that's the law of the Leverite marriage. And it's commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, So long story short, Naomi was trying to let them out. You don't have to do this. I know this is culture. I know this is tradition. And Naomi, if she had been familiar with the word of God that they had at the time, would have known this law existed. But she did not hold them to it. So Orpah takes her up on her offer, but Ruth refuses. Now let's think about Ruth's dedication to Naomi. Because in all honesty, um, these verses, uh, what is it, 16 and 17 of chapter 1, are where we get our wedding vows. Did you know that? Um, I actually love to read those couple verses when I perform a wedding as a, well, to point out that our, our wedding vows do come from the Bible. And so she refuses to go. She says, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Right? Don't, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to turn back. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I'm going to lodge wherever you lodge. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts us. So think about Ruth's dedication. And what she was willing to give up to serve her mother-in-law. So she left her people. And this wasn't like, you know, today, where if if you grew up in Gunnison and you get married and you move to Canada, um, that you'll never come back to see your family. Right? We We have phones, we have FaceTime, we have Zoom calls, 
we have email, we have aeroplanes, and, and right? It, it's, it's not that it's cheap or that it's always easy or convenient, but it can be done. You can go see your family no matter how far they are. That's not the way it worked back then. When you left your family, you knew you were probably never going to see them again. Right? We don't even know how long she was married before her husband died. It could have been six months, it could have been five years, but whatever the case, Naomi's saying you don't have to do that. So she left her people, she left her family. Um, the third one's not so bad. She left her pagan religion to serve the one true living God. And she said, your God will be my God. And a couple times in those verses, she uses his name, Jehovah. So my guess is, is that perhaps her husband or the family in general were still in some way, shape, or form being devoted to the one true God. And finally, and this is, this is the, the worst of them all, she most likely, and she knew this going in, gave up her chance of ever getting remarried and ever having children. Because as a Moabite woman, the Israelites were actually forbidden to marry them. Now, we know from the book of Judges that didn't really stop them, but she knew as a widow who was taking care of her mother-in-law that she would likely never get remarried or have children. And this is what we are called to as followers of Christ. We are to give ourselves up completely to serve God and the people that he calls us to serve. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I've always loved that. Um, when we rightly apply that verse, it is so meaningful. Right? Now, some people wrongly apply that verse. Oh, you know, I've got this really tough co-worker. It's just my cross to bear. No, it's not. I've got this child that's, you know, out of control. I guess it's just my cross to bear. What did the cross mean to Jesus? It meant the surrendering of his will to the Father and the sacrifice of everything he was to carry out that law. So when we're told to take up our cross daily, that means daily we are called as followers of Christ to surrender our will to the Father's and sacrifice everything that we are to carry out that law by his power grace, of course, because we can't do that on our own. But that's what it means to take up our cross daily and follow him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you. It's very rare that I wake up in the morning and think, ah, oh, this life isn't mine. Anybody? Is that, is that the first thing that goes through? I mean, sometimes I get up and I'm, I'm fairly spiritual. Lord, thank you for a new day. Time to get going. Sometimes I get up and, well, I may mutter things that are unrepeatable in church. Um, last night, I think we, I went to bed at 1.30 and then got up at 6-something to go to breakfast with the other pastors. 
I'm a little sleepy. But that was my fault. We were, we were watching the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Uh, worth it. And just so you know, I have an illustration all worked out based on the series for Sunday's message. So, in any case, it's not my life. It's not mine. It's his. And he lives through me. And I live by faith in him. But it's not my life. It's his to do with as he pleases. Verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. I, I feel like she had like a witchy voice. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her. They returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This, to me, is interesting. Here we see Naomi's bitterness. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And she blames God for what happened. How often do people like to blame God for their own bad decisions? Just throwing that out there. One of my favorite quotes in the entire world outside of Scripture is that everything happens for a reason. And sometimes that reason is you're stupid and you make bad decisions. Please don't be too offended. But that's the reality. But she came back blaming God for what happened. But whose decision was it? Well, most likely it was a Limelech's decision to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. It wasn't God's decision. They as a family were being disobedient to God and going. The boys were old enough to say no. They were of marrying age once they got to Moab. So they didn't have to follow. They could have stayed in Bethlehem. And when we blame God for the bad things that happen in our lives, we're missing two very important aspects of reality and of his character. First, our decisions have consequences, positive and negative, that God may not want in our lives, and they may be separate from his perfect will for us. But our decisions have consequences, and what we would like is to make our own decisions, right, to enact our own will in our lives, and then have God bless it and make sure nothing goes wrong, even when we make poor decisions. I've, I've done that. Now I'm going to tell you something about the graciousness and faithfulness of God. I have made stupid decisions. 
I have faced the consequences of those decisions, and God has gotten me out of it. Not every time, not every time. Sometimes he lets me stew in it. But he has done that for me, and he doesn't have to. And second, as I did mention, God does use everything in our lives for good, even our mistakes. So even when we make a bad decision, and even when we live with the consequences of it, we can trust that God is going to be at work in such a way as to work it out for good in our lives, even when we can't see it. And then we see Naomi holding on to this bitterness, to this unforgiveness. And when we hold on to that, whether it's towards God or someone else, and yes, I know that sounds odd, but we can be bitter and even unforgiving toward God. Now, God doesn't actually need our forgiveness, nor do we ever have anything that we actually would need to forgive him for. He is perfect, and everything he does is perfect, and he is always, always, always right. But there are times when things don't work out the way we would have liked them to, that that's hard for us, and we get bitter towards God, because we know he could have done something, and we have to trust that whatever reason he didn't do something is according to his will, or if it wasn't according to his will, at the very least, he's going to use it for his glory and our benefit. Folks, that's a hard pill to swallow, right? And we've all had to swallow it. One of the hardest ever, when Leah and I were just talking about this the other day, was when we lost our nephew. When, when the judge gave him back, oh, I was... I was becoming a person that would have gone down a very bad path if God hadn't done that. I know that. Um, it took me years to figure that out. Um, but I was getting to the point where I was so angry and so enraged at what was going on that I, I was on the precipice of violence. And... Um, Every once in a while, I go, you know, I probably just should have done it and gone to Mexico. <laughs> That's not funny. Don't laugh at that. <laughs> but, um, but I saw that. So maybe that was part of the purpose. I don't know. Um, I don't know. But holding on to bitterness, it doesn't harm anybody else. It harms us. Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. doesn't harm them. It harms us. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And that's, that's a verse, and there's several others like it that I think about. Um, there's a great C.S. Lewis quote that says, we need to forgive the worst in other people because God has forgiven the worst in us. And I know, I know that's hard. 
And it doesn't happen overnight. But it's healing. Chapter 2. Yeah, we're getting through all four chapters. You guys got anywhere to be? Chapter 2. Uh, I never, I didn't say I'd get through. I, well, actually, at the beginning, I did say I'd get through four chapters in forty-three and a half minutes. Well, that would be three chapters in the next twenty minutes. Um, chapter two: There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. I like me Boaz. Boaz, swiftness or in him is strength. He is a close relative. Uh, when we get to chapter 2, verse 20, um, we will read that he is a kinsman redeemer. And this is all about that law that we talked about. Uh, the kinsman redeemer or the goal or goal is a relative who is a redeemer who can redeem the land of a dead relative or can redeem a relative who sold themselves into slavery or they can redeem um, the wife of a relative who had died. This is all in Leviticus chapter 25, and we read about in, in John 1, 1 through 5 and 14, and Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, that Jesus became a human being so that he could be our kinsman redeemer, right? In order to be our goal, to be our kinsman redeemer, he had to be a kinsman, and so he had to take on flesh. And you had to buy the land to get the bride. So we're going to see that's what Boaz does, um, and that's what Jesus did. Essentially, he redeemed all of creation, including us, so that we could be saved. Verse 2. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field, which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have brought. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I, I love that, and, and I know it's not in my notes, so I'm going to stop real quick or I'm going to forget to say it. What did Naomi do? Not Naomi, Ruth. What did Ruth do to earn favor from Boaz? Right Now he answers in verse 11, It's been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before and the Lord repay your work with a full reward. Um, and and we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment, but 
she really hadn't done anything for Boaz. She did something for Naomi, and what she did, we've talked about, was, was amazing. But she hadn't done anything for Boaz. Yet Boaz showed her favor. Do you know another word for favor in the Bible? Grace. What have we done to earn or deserve the grace of God? Nothing. What can we do to gain greater favor with God? Nothing. It's one of the most amazing things about our relationship with him. There's nothing we can do to earn our place. There's nothing we can do to keep our place. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more. He already loves us more. That's incredible to me. I saw a Louis Giglio quote that I love. It says, for all of you out there who think that God won't give you a second chance, he shouldn't have given you the first chance. I know I kind of butchered the quote, but that's the idea. Oh, I, I've, I've done too much. I can't come back. Well, you, you shouldn't have been able to come to begin with. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is grace. Where were we? Verse 11. <laughs> so he basically talks about everything that she had done for Naomi, how he had, she had taken care of her. And he says, I love verse 12, the Lord repay your work. And a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at the mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat behind, beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. This, by the way, is 3,000 or so B.C. flirting. Here, have some bread. Just pointing that out. I think it's gone the wrong direction. Today, flirting is so much worse. And when she arose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not eat reproach her, and also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it, that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. When she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw that what she had gleaned, so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. So this was the welfare law in Israel. And I think it was a great law. We know it's in Second uh, Thessalonians uh, that Paul writes, if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. And I like that because... I like to eat, so I, I go to work. Uh, but the point was, is that principle was applied in Israel. You got someone poor, someone who doesn't have their own field, someone who doesn't have a job, someone who whatever, and not just the Israelites, but foreigners as well. When you go to glean your fields, don't strip them bare. Don't go back for the corners. Don't pick up the stuff you've dropped. When you... Pick your olives, only go over it once. When you pick your grapes, only go over the vines once. If something else grows or whatever you miss, leave it there. But if you wanted to go get that food, well, you had to go work for it. 
you had to go out and pick it yourself. You had to go out and you, you see what Ruth did. She had to gather, then she had to beat it out. She had to, to um, thresh her own grain so that she could take it home and use it. Uh, that law, by the way, is listed for us in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17 through 22. Um, and this is actually still practiced in Israel and other parts of the world today. So Boaz takes this law and applies it very liberally to Ruth. He allows her to glean even among the standing grain. So the stuff they hadn't harvested, she could go pluck up and put it in her bundle. She commanded her young men who he was, she was following behind. You know what? If you notice she's behind you, drop a little extra for her so she doesn't have to work quite as hard to get so much. Um, he, he feeds her lunch. He tells, the, the, tells her she can drink water from the water that his servants were drawing. I mean, he just treats her with so much kindness. I mean, beyond what was necessary by their cultural standards. But to Boaz, I think this was necessary because of the kindness she had shown Naomi. He was such a man of integrity that he wanted to take care of her. Didn't just give it to her, but he kind of did. And so I, I appreciate Boaz. After she beats out, she ends up with an ephah of barley, which, now there's some argument about over how much that is, um, but the guesstimate is somewhere around 64 pounds. So just imagine going to Walmart or going to City Market and getting 64 one-pound sacks, or you know, if you get the five-pound sack of flour, you would need, well, I can't do math that fast. How many five-pound sacks of flour in 64? 10, 12, 13. Almost 13, if it was 65. Just getting 13 five-pound sacks or 64 one-pound sacks and putting them in your cart and then carrying it home. Right? You didn't have a car. You had to bundle all of this up. They would put it on almost what would be like a sheet. Uh, it wasn't you know, made of Egyptian cotton. But they would put it almost on like a sheet, and once it was threshed, they would tie the corners up. And she had to carry 64 pounds of grain home. We don't know how far that walk was. That's a lot of grain. And so there's a few things we're going to pull out of this, and then we're going to stop. <laughs> we're not going to get any farther. Loving God means loving others. The way Boaz loved Ruth, right? He had absolutely nothing to gain from doing this for Ruth. Actually, he was losing by doing this for Ruth. He was losing the time of his employees. He was losing the grain that they were dropping for her or that she was pulling from the standing grain. He had nothing to gain. It was entirely for her benefit. And that's what true service is is doing things entirely for the benefit of someone else. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I can tell you throughout my life there have been uh, multiple people, one of them is sitting right over there. She's so cute who have served me completely selflessly. She has done that over and over again. And how amazing that is to be able to experience that 
That's what Jesus did. That's what he calls us to do. In verse 12, ooh, I do want to point out, just because I think it's so cool, that when Boaz gets out to the field and sees all of his reapers, he said, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Anybody ever had a job like that? I'm not talking about a job in the church. I'm talking about, right, you, you show up at work, and uh, I'm going to have to start saying that to the lead teachers, even though they don't work for me. But I, I can still say that to you all when I come in in the morning. Um, remind me, because I'm going to forget uh, but if you ever, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of jobs. I've never once, and I've had, a, I've had jobs where my bosses were believers, and I've never once had a boss walk into me, walk in while I was at work and say, oh, the Lord be with you. And the Lord bless you, he said. I just thought that was cool. So in verse 12, he says, the Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings we have come for refuge. And I just love that phrase. Because where do we run in times of trouble? Where do we find our refuge? Do we look to other people? Do we look to material goods? Do we look to something within ourselves? Like, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm just going to pluck up enough strength and courage to deal with this. That, by the way, is the second time I've used the word pluck. I don't know why I remember that. Or do we run to God? And do we make our refuge under him? Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your rings, I, wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Notice that prayer. Right? There are plenty of prayers in the Bible where the person says, you know, remove it from me, you know, knock the teeth out of the mouth of my enemies, set that city on fire, right? Especially when it's David writing. But notice this prayer. Not, Lord, take it away, but, Lord, I'm going to hide in you until I get through it. Love that. Psalm 91, verse 4. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Boaz's words of kindness brought Ruth comfort, though, again, it was not required of him since she was not one of his servants and was a foreigner living in the land. And I'll make a quick comment, and then we'll, we'll finish up the chapter. We do not know how far words of kindness and comfort can go in the life of someone who needs to be encouraged. There have been times where I'm, I'm just sitting here in my office, and somebody will text me and, and just be like, sometimes it's her, I'm thinking of you. Sometimes I've been one of my elders or just somebody from the church. Or who knows? It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens. Ah, you know, I was thinking about you. I was praying for you. I hope you're having a blessed day. And I'm like, ah, that's just so cool. And you never know if you're the person to give that out, the difference you might make in someone's life. I, I once heard, uh, I think it was Pastor Chuck, but uh, some pastor said, um, the devil will never tempt you to do something good. So if you feel like you're being prompted to encourage somebody or prompted to comfort somebody or prompted just to reach out to somebody, pretty sure that's the Holy Spirit and that we need to respond to that. Verse 19. When her mother-in-law's 
and oh, and her mother-in-law. So she gets back, brings all this grain. They have a big old dinner, um, and her mother-in-law said to her, "Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you." So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she said, "The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz." And Naomi, now this isn't in in the Bible, but if you were there, you would have seen a light bulb go off or go on, sorry, over Naomi's head, right? Ding, 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 ding. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. And that word close relative is the word Boaz or kinsman redeemer. Ruth the Moabite said, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So I love this. Naomi's response, right? Light bulb, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living. She recognized that God was at work that we are not given the amount of time that passed between chapter 1 and 2, but it could have been days, it could have been weeks, it could have been months. Uh, but whatever the case, Naomi moved from the Lord has testified against me and, and afflicted me to he has not forsaken me. I love that. Because it's really easy to get in that bitter kind of mindset and then God will step in and he'll do something. And all of a sudden, oh, that's right. You haven't gone anywhere. You're still here. You're still in charge. Psalm 30, verse 11. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. When Naomi let go of her bitterness, she was set free to recognize how God was at work in her life. Finally, Naomi gives this advice. Once all of the, everything came out, she tells Ruth, do what Boaz said. Stay in his field. Hang out with his young women. And Ruth did that all the way to the end of the harvest. And, um, you know, just by way, because we're going to close, I think it's always wise for us to listen to godly advice. Because this was good advice. Proverbs 10.8, the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. Proverbs 16.20, he who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. And so the first two chapters of the book of Ruth, and we're going to stop. Um, absolutely beautiful. Because what we see, as I said at the beginning, is in the midst of chaos, in the midst of tragedy, in, in, in the midst of what in that culture equated to impossible odds. God's at work. And he's at work in a way that they didn't expect. Right? Do you think it was a chance that, that Ruth wandered into Boaz's field? Do you think it was a chance that Boaz decided that day to go out and visit his reapers in that field? There are no coincidences in the kingdom of God. 
Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And I pray that we can take away from the book of Ruth tonight the incredible truth that you are at work. When we can't see it, when we don't understand it, when we're bitter and angry, when we're struggling, even when we're rejoicing, Lord, in all things, at all times, you are always at work. Let us hide ourselves under the shadow of your great wings, of your amazing love, and your undeserved grace. That you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.